Thank you for downloading this sermon from Grace Presbyterian Church. Grace is a church where people seeking more grace, more depth, and more community can start finding their way and sharing their gifts with the world. You can follow us online at graceforsufalls.org. I want to start by talking a little bit about the explanatory power of evil. Or to put it another way, the explanatory power of human depravity and the doctrine of original sin. There's a quote that fascinates me, a, a, a passage written by Herman Melville. Herman Melville, you remember, is the guy that wrote Moby Dick, which is a really long novel about a group of hunters on the high seas who are chasing a white whale who is a not very well-disguised symbol of God. And the hunter who is chasing after him and trying to kill him has a good Old Testament name, Ahab, which not a lot of people looking for Old Testament names tend to name their children these days because he's one of the bad kings of Israel. But Melville knows his Bible and all of this stuff is intentional. So Herman Melville, deeply steeped in scripture, understanding his uh, sort of, let's say, American Calvinistic theological heritage, although he rejects that, is writing a description of a friend of his who's also a writer, a guy named Nathaniel Hawthorne, who you may have heard of. And he's trying to explain to someone where the power of Hawthorne's writing comes from. In particular, what he refers to as the blackness of it. Hawthorne seems to understand something uh, about evil that comes through powerfully in his writing. This is the way that Melville explains it. He says, certain it is that this great power of blackness in him derives its force from its appeal to that Calvinistic sense of innate depravity and original sin, from whose visitations in some shape or other, no deeply thinking mind is always and wholly free. Or in certain moods, no man can weigh this world without throwing in something somehow like original sin to strike the uneven balance. The power, he says, in Hawthorne's writing comes from that theological heritage, that insight into human nature that he grew up with, although walked away from, rejected. And yet there was something about it that was inescapable. There was something about it that he couldn't walk away from, even though he turned away from so much. And it was the explanatory power of its ideas. In other words, that doctrine of depravity, human depravity and original sin, it explained things that otherwise would be hard to understand. But living as we do in the 21st century and being products as we are of our culture, one of the things that is hard for us to talk about with a straight face is the idea of evil uh, or to, to make it more comfortable, evil, right? With the square, uh, square quotes, scare quotes around it. That's an idea that we now find problematic because it implies a transcendent moral order by which it might be possible to judge someone's actions as either good or evil and say what you've done is, is good or it's evil. And, and now we've come to think that those kinds of judgments don't reflect some sort of higher reality 
that when people talk about good and evil, what they're doing is, is a power play, right? Evil is something we invented so that we can uh, put other people under our control by labeling what they do as evil and what we do is good. So when we talk about evil, the reason why we want to put the quotes around it is that what evil sounds like is, is, is a, a thing that goes by another term, othering, that we only ever call the other evil. Evil is a label that we use to distance ourselves from other people. And as a result, uh, it's, it's a fashionable and, and, and enlightened thing to acknowledge that there is, in fact, no such thing as evil. Maybe there are things that are good, but there's nothing that's actually evil. It just seems evil to you because you, you can't empathize. You don't understand where those actions come from and originate. That's an enlightened way of thinking, but it's also a way of thinking that is facilitated by a life with little contact with actual evil. Where it's not necessary to struggle with how to categorize aspects of reality that seem to be more than just a misunderstanding, more than just a different set of values, but actually seem to touch on something that is higher, that is transcendent. And so experience has this funny way of bringing us back to these old ideas that we've grown out of. Experience keeps guiding us back, even though intellectually we may have rejected these thoughts entirely. The experience of reality brings us back to the doctrine of depravity, the doctrine of original sin, just as Melville says it does. No deeply thinking person, he says, can reckon with the world as it is and try to balance those scales without throwing in something like original sin. Maybe you don't call it that because that would sound old-fashioned, but, but you need some kind of a concept that essentially is the same in order to make those scales balance. The reason is that these aspects of Christian theology this doctrine of original sin and depravity offers a better explanation of the world as it is, as we experience it, than explanations which try to deny those realities and get us to rationalize why evil really isn't evil at all. Because of that, sometimes having to face evil and having to confront evil, it can be a powerful apologetic. Right? Because there are a lot of philosophies of life that tend to tell us these things don't exist. When you are confronted by that reality, suddenly a system of thought which acknowledges it becomes appealing. Right? There's, there's an opening, in other words, that's created for that. That's good as far as it goes. But what's interesting to me is to see that what Paul does with the idea of evil, with the idea of sin, with the doctrine of depravity and original sin, he uses it to do more than just suggest the truth of Christian doctrine. He doesn't say, look, there's real evil in the world, and Christianity acknowledges and explains that evil, therefore Christianity must be true. What he does is something more than that. He uses that reality 
as a springboard, as a window into a greater reality, a, a, a larger reality that has to do not with evil, but with goodness. That has to do not with sin, but with grace. Because from Paul's point of view, and from Scripture's point of view, Herman Melville, as well-intentioned as he is, he's actually wrong. But if you're trying to balance those scales, you can't just throw the doctrine of original sin or something like it on the scales and get it to balance. Reality is never going to balance. It's never going to make sense without Christ in that scale, without grace and goodness in that scale as well. And that's the point of the analogy that we see Paul making in our text. Adam's work, when seen clearly, will open your eyes to Christ's work. All of the the doctrine of depravity, original sin, all of that stuff, what it does when you see it, when you realize it connects with reality, with the world around you, don't stop there, but travel on, Paul says, and see what it teaches you about the work of Christ as well. So he states his analogy in verse 12, but he only gets to the first part of the analogy. Right? He says, therefore, just as sin came into the world through one man and death through sin, and so death spread to all men because all sinned, and that's where he breaks off. Now, analogy, you know, has to have two parts. An analogy is a kind of comparison. You are explaining an unfamiliar thing through a comparison to something that is familiar. And so if I want you to understand a new concept, I remind you of an old one that you already know, and then I show you how the two things work in a similar way. That's what he's doing. You know how sin works. You know about evil. You know about Adam and the fall and all of that stuff. Well, if you understand that, Paul says, you will understand how Christ's work works too, because they're connected. They're connected, as you might think of as polar opposites, because Christ has to resolve the damage done by the work of Adam. So there's a connection there. He states it fully in verse 18, therefore, as one trespass, one sin, led to condemnation for all men, so one act of righteousness leads to justification and life for all men. As one thing happened, so also this other thing has happened. There's a parallel in the two between condemnation and justification. So why all the interruptions? It's tempting if you look at this passage in isolation to think that this is one of those instances where Paul is just like overly excited. Like he's, you know, sometimes you're really excited and you're trying to get it all out, but it comes out in a weird kind of order because your mind is just racing and stuff is occurring to you as you're speaking and you kind of forget where you started and you have to circle back and that sort of thing. And and it's tempting to read Paul this way as if Paul were just like so excited about this analogy that he just couldn't quite spit it out. And as a result, it, it comes, but it comes in this sort of, you know, confused form that we need to unpick. But I'm going to suggest it's not that Paul is overly excited here. And it's also not that he has a short attention span and he keeps forgetting what it was that he was going to say and having to circle back. What's going on here literarily is more complicated than that. But all of the pieces, all of the digressions, the qualifications are all connected to themes he has already raised in the preceding chapters. And what he's doing here is it's all now coming together. 
It's as if a lot of groundwork has been laid so that this analogy rings true. So that when you hear it, you get it, and the pieces click together. But as that clicking together is happening, Paul is also guiding the pieces so that you don't fit them together the wrong way. So that you don't miss or you don't draw the wrong conclusions from what it is that he's saying. That's the reason why he's qualifying things and and stating things in this sort of careful and precise way. He's bringing it all together, and he wants to make sure that when it comes together, it locks together tightly, that it fits. Now, he's already referred to Old Testament figures, to Genesis figures, right? He cited Abraham and Abraham's justification as a model for us to understand how our justification, gospel justification, is by faith and not by works, But now, here in this analogy, he's going back to the beginning. You don't go beyond Adam. Like, Adam is the first human being created. And so he is now connecting Christ to Adam, connecting this new beginning to the original beginning. And there's a context in which the analogy emerges. It's a life and death context that he's established already for us in verse 10, which we looked at last time. In verse 10, Paul writes, For if while we were enemies, we were reconciled to God by the death of his son, much more now that we are reconciled, shall we be saved by his life. We were reconciled by his death, but we will be saved by his life. And if you recall, when we thought about that phrase, saved by his life, there's a lot of ways you could read it. But the, the interpretation that's strongest is that, that what Paul means when he says we are saved by his life, he's talking about his resurrection life. That, that the resurrection of Christ, the continued life of Christ, will save us. Which makes perfect sense because for Paul, the great hope of the Christian gospel is bodily resurrection. He points to the resurrection of Jesus and says, just as it was for him, it will be for us. That is our hope, that Christ died but lived again, was raised, and we will die but we will be raised. That's the connection there that he is building on. So in a nutshell, the analogy is saying that sin and death started with Adam, and now justification and life come with Christ. That's the connection. That just as Adam brought sin and condemnation upon all who, all who belong to Adam. Now Christ brings justification and life to all who belong to him. And in that sense, the two works are parallel. They couldn't be more different in terms of what is done. But in terms of how they work, there is a similarity. Adam's fall could only be undone by Christ's resurrection. It's a way to think of that. Adam's act brought death. Christ's brings life. That's the significance of the other passages that are in your order of worship. If you want to understand this analogy in Romans 5, you really have to go to 1 Corinthians 15 and look at the way that Paul uses this same comparison between Adam and Christ. Now, in 1 Corinthians 15, The context, famously, is resurrection. Paul begins this chapter talking about the reality of the resurrection. Will there be a future physical resurrection of the body? 
That's the argument they're having in the church in Corinth. It was the argument that the Pharisees had with the Sadducees. Even though when we think Pharisees, we think bad, the Pharisees were right on that point. The Pharisees believed in a future bodily resurrection. The Sadducees thought, no, that's a metaphor. That's not real. That's not truly going to happen. It's just a pretty idea. So 1 Corinthians 15 gives us that context of resurrection, and it's in that context that Paul gives us the connection between Adam and Christ. In fact, he spells it out more explicitly in 1 Corinthians 15. So I've given you two passage, passages from 1 Corinthians 15. The first one is verses 21 through 26. The second one is 21 through, or sorry, 42 through 49. So let's look at that first one. Paul says, starting in 21 of 1 Corinthians 15, for as by a man came death, by a man has come also the resurrection of the dead, which sounds, again, like the same thing we've just read in Romans using slightly different words. And we're getting the same parallel. One man did this, one man did that. The consequences here were death, the consequences here are life. So same analogy. For as in Adam all die, so also in Christ shall all be made alive. Again, the same idea. Death through Adam for all. Life through Christ for all. But just as he does in Romans 5, Paul qualifies what he's saying. He steers the course of your thought. And in the next line, he gives you a sense of what that all is means he says but each in his own order christ the first fruits then at his coming those who belong to christ so resurrection but in two parts first the resurrection of christ and that's where this idea of first fruits comes from that we alluded to earlier the christ resurrection is described as the uh, the first fruits the initial burst of the harvest that is to come So Paul looks at the resurrection of Christ, and the reason why it's important is not the reason it's often important to modern-day Christian apologists. If people argue over whether or not Christ really rose from the dead today, usually the reason that seems like an important argument to have is if Jesus didn't really rise from the dead, then Scripture can't really be relied upon because it says that he did. And if that didn't really happen, then the Bible is, is at best a sort of pious myth. But that's not the reason Paul thinks this is important. Paul's not actually trying to defend the integrity of Scripture in this argument. He's defending the gospel itself. Because if Christ did not raise from the dead, then what hope do we have of raising from the dead? And that's the point, that that if Christ is not raised, then we will not be raised either. And that's why he thinks it's so important to know that Christ was raised from the dead because he was the first fruits. He was the guarantee of the harvest that was to come, that we can rely upon the resurrection of the dead, our resurrection, our life after death, because Christ has already shown that this is the pattern, that this is the way. This is what it will be like for all who are in Christ. So in Christ shall all be made alive all of those who belong to Christ will be made alive in Christ. 
And then we take an interesting turn in verse 24. Then comes the end when he delivers the kingdom to God the Father after destroying every rule and every authority and power. For he must reign until he has put all his enemies under his feet. The last enemy to be destroyed is death. The idea that should emerge from this comparison and seeing the way that Adam's work functions and Christ's is the way in which both of them act as representatives for their people. Right? That Adam's sin has an effect on all human beings. It's not just that Adam set a bad example and that all of us, just by chance, have happened to follow down that same path. The actual sin of Adam constituted an act which brought us all under condemnation. That's the doctrine of original sin, that because of Adam's sin, that first sin, all of us who originate in Adam are partakers of that sin, partakers of that condemnation. Paul will point out later in Romans 5, this is true even for those who didn't sin in the way that Adam did. They still die as a result of sin. Even those who've never uh, matured, to be able to, to choose to sin, die, and death is a consequence of sin. That's the point that he's making. That's because of Adam's work. And in the same way, Christ acts as a representative for his people. What Christ has done, his act of righteousness is counted. To use that word uh, we used earlier, imputed to Christ's people as their own. The context here, though, is a context of kingdom. Right? The reason why, as we read about Adam and Christ, we quickly go into this idea of Christ um, having all authority. As he says at the end of Matthew 28, all authority has been given to me, and now he is putting enemies under his feet, and the last of those enemies is death. We see that there is a, a struggle between kingdoms. In Adam's fall, a kingdom was born a kingdom of darkness, a kingdom of death, and Christ has come to overthrow that kingdom. What it means to say that Christ is king, to say that death is overthrown, that the kingdom of death has been defeated, has been conquered by Christ. And then Christ, once he's done this work of conquest, Paul says, hands the kingdom over to the Father, giving us a model for what Christ-like authority looks like. He takes power, not to have power, but to give, to surrender it in order to glorify the father. So he is the first fruits, not only in the sense that his resurrection points to our resurrection, but also in the sense that he points the way for how we are to live in this life too. Building on that idea of Adam and Christ as representatives for all who are united to them, we see that Adam's people inherit death, but Christ's inherit life. And this is where the second passage in 1 Corinthians 15 is so interesting, because here Paul is trying to talk about the nature of the resurrected body. And he makes a contrast between the physical and the spiritual. And it's, it's a, a tough one for us because we tend to think of, of physical and spiritual as, as opposites so that to be physical is to be non-spiritual and to be spiritual is to be disembodied. And that's the idea. But, but here, Paul talks about spiritual bodies having in mind 
Christ after the resurrection. Like Christ is in some ways very different than he had been before his death, but he is still physical. Like he is still like, like possessing a, a human form, a human body. He can be touched, right? That's still possible. So, so it's complicated, but the way that Paul represents it is that that physical body represents the, the sort of fallenness that comes from Adam, that the spiritual body represents what Adam would have obtained through obedience had the fall never occurred, a glorified condition. So this is starting in verse 42. So it is with the resurrection of the dead. What is sown is perishable. What is raised is imperishable. And see again, the harvest metaphor, sowing and raising. We plant and then we harvest. What is sown is perishable. What is raised is imperishable. It is sown in dishonor. It is raised in glory. It is sown in weakness. It is raised in power. It is sown a natural body. It is raised a spiritual body. If there is a natural body, there is also a spiritual body. Thus, it is written, the first man, Adam, became a living being. That's from Genesis 2.7. The last Adam became a life-giving spirit. But it is not the spiritual that is first, but the natural and then the spiritual. The first man was from the earth, a man of dust. The second man is from heaven. As was the man of dust, so also are those who are of the dust. And as is the man of heaven, so also are those who are of heaven. Just as we have been born the image, we have borne the image of the man of dust, we shall also bear the image of the man of heaven. This man of dust, man of heaven contrast emphasizes the life that we have in Christ. Like there was a life that Adam possessed. Right, that passage in Genesis 2 speaks to the way in which God breathed life into the first man. But that life was something he was capable of losing through sin. Like he could not sustain himself. Right? He needed to uh, continue to eat, continue to breathe. Like he needed the, the support of the world around him in order to live. He was dependent in that way. And that's not how Christ was. Christ, we're told, the man from heaven became a life-giving spirit. Adam had life. Christ gives life. There's a difference there, a huge difference. Not only does Christ have this life within himself, but he gives this life to all of us. Gives a life that can never be lost. We saw already the idea of representation from the point of view of Adam and the point of view of Christ. Here you get it from our point of view in verse 48. As was the man of dust, so also are those who are of the dust. And as is the man of heaven, so also are those who are of heaven. Like those who are of the dust, those who are of Adam, are like him. They bear the image, the, the imprint of his stamp as a consequence of being of him or in him. All those who are in Christ or of Christ will bear the stamp of Christ, the imprints that he makes in us as well. That's the connection between we who are represented and those who represent us. 
You also see another contrast there in verse 49. Just as we have borne the image of the man of dust, we shall also bear the image of the man of heaven. We have and we shall. There's a present reality, but also a future reality that this analogy points us to. In a way, we have and we shall is a good summary, a thumbnail of the Christian life. It it, it speaks to two realities that we experience. One that we experience now, another that we experience by means of hope. There's uh, an eschatological, like, like future hope that we have, a reality that we long for. Let's call it a victory reality. Right? There's a reality of victory, Christ's triumph, that, that will be. We shall bear that image of Christ when he comes again. Like These things happen when he comes, but not yet. Not yet. We long for that victory reality, but right now there is a, a this life joy struggle. There's joy, a call to joy but in the midst of strife and struggle. And that conflict, that joy struggle, is what Paul will get into further in Romans as he talks about what it means to live as a Christian. Now that I am justified, how do I continue to live with sin still struggling within me? That, that conflict there. All of that is contained in that analogy, all of that is hinted at in the analogy, and all of that is, is the grounds that we will unpack uh, week by week as we work through this passage. But um, for now, just to kind of summarize, the point is really this. Grace explains what sin can't. Acknowledge the explanatory power of evil, the doctrine of sin, the doctrine of depravity. And there's a part of me as a, as a hard-nosed cynic looking at the world that we live in that finds a lot of perverse comfort in those realities. You know, con- contemplate every bad thing that happens in the world is like a, a, a theological affirmation. It's as if the world and every tragedy is patting me on the back and saying, you're right, Mark, it's depraved. It's a depraved world out there. In fact, to say it's depraved isn't enough. It's totally depraved in every aspect. I'm like, "Ah, I knew it. I knew it. I knew I was right about that. But what a sad thing it would be is if that was all the gospel accomplished for us. If that all the gospel accomplished was to confirm us in our low view of our fellow human beings. To confirm us in our cynicism to assure us that no matter how bad things are, they could be much worse. If that's all the comfort the gospel gave, what what comfort is that really? All of that, as useful as it may be in a certain frame of mind, all of that is just the first plank, the first part in the analogy. And it's the second part that matters. We don't want to wallow in and rejoice in the condemnation when it's the deliverance that matters. And the deliverance is the reason why it's important to be honest about the condemnation. Because it's seeing Adam's work clearly that lets us see Christ's work more. I quoted 
Melville at the beginning, and, and I admire Melville a lot. I've read Moby Dick. It's a great book. It's not my favorite author, though, by a long stretch. One of my favorite 20th century novelists is a guy named Barry Unsworth, who you probably have never heard of, but uh, a lot of people have never heard of me. And so I think it's always good to, to value people who are, are obscure. Uh, Unsworth said this. I wrote this down years ago, and I come back to it over and over again. He says, wickedness is too common in the world for us to think much of why and wherefore. It is more natural to ask about the rarer thing and wonder why people sometimes do good. Which is fascinating to me when you think about all of the energy that goes into the so-called problem of evil, like the mystery of evil, understanding evil, such a a, a head-scratcher. Why do people do the terrible things that they do? And those are conversations we should enter into, and we have answers to give in those conversations. But it strikes me that he's right. We puzzle so much over evil, and maybe we should puzzle over good a little more, because that's the real mystery. The mystery isn't why are people wicked. It's why are they ever not? Why is there so much good all around us? I'm not saying that the mystery of evil is not worth reflecting on, I'm just saying there's a greater mystery that we tend to take for granted. The mystery of goodness. Or to use Paul's terms in 1 Timothy 3, the mystery of godliness. The profound mystery of grace. Great indeed, we confess, is the mystery of godliness. He was manifested in the flesh, vindicated by the spirit, seen by angels, proclaimed among the nations, believed on in the world, taken up in glory. First Timothy 3.16, if you wonder why in the Christian church we profess our faith through creeds, I just read to you one of the earliest creeds of the Christian church. You can see in it like the, the kernel of the Apostles' Creed, the Nicene Creed. The mystery of godliness is revealed in the person of Christ, in the work of Christ that he did. Not in the evil, but in the good, in the grace, the justification that delivers us from condemnation. The evil all around us testifies to the reality of Adam's sin. And it's the reason why these old ideas are so inescapable if you think about the world that we live in. And yet, you are surrounded by so much beauty, so much goodness, that it would be a tragedy not to contemplate that mystery and what that testifies to. The evil testifies. The evil bears witness to a truth that is revealed in Scripture, but the beauty testifies to. The beauty proclaims a truth As well, it is the truth of grace. None of the beauty is neutral. None of it is just there for the sake of being there, but the goodness in the world is there to proclaim the glory of God to us so that we can see it. It testifies to the goodness and the beauty of the creator and the redeemer of the world, Jesus Christ. Thank you for listening. You can find more sermons from Grace and information about joining us for worship by visiting our website at graceforsufalls.org. 
We also invite you to visit the iTunes store and subscribe to the Sermons of Grace podcast.